Welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast, presented by Paul Spain and Anne Guest. Hi, I'm Paul Spain, and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode 122, a special episode where we feature an interview with Chris Quinn, uh, who, of course, is CEO Telecom Retail at Telecom New Zealand, and he's also the chairman at the Ice House. So let's jump into that interview now. Well, Chris Quinn, good to, uh, good to spend some time with you. Thank you for uh, putting some time aside. Thank you. It's great to be catching up. Now, your, your background with telecom goes back uh, about 20 years, doesn't it? <laughs> A little bit over 21. Uh, so I started in 1991 in telecom um, with Telecom Wellington Limited. So this was back when telecom was still five regional operating companies. So incredibly different world. I think I started three or four months before the first competitor arrived uh, as Clear Communications. So amazing walking into the business at that time and seeing a, a business that wasn't particularly focused on competition to now where it's an everyday reality. Yeah, and I guess yeah, over that time, I mean, most recently you've spent uh, four years as CEO of uh, Genai, mm-hmm. and then uh, after that, sort of interim CEO for the Telecom Group, yes. and and now I think about the last seven months uh, as CEO for uh, for Telecom Retail. But yeah, that's pretty much correct. Genai has been nearly eight years. When you go from two thousand and four through, uh, we had a couple of different structural models, but four right. years as as CEO of Genai. Yep. Um, and look, you know, so after a long time in the corporate enterprise and government market uh, in New Zealand and a little in Australia, to move to our retail business, um, it was, you know, in many ways really helpful to be acting CEO for a while because you got to see the bigger perspective of the company. And even though you've been around a long time, you're so possessed by the job you've got to do and the customers you're looking after in the in day to day. But whilst you hear about some of the issues from your colleagues, um, you know, without being unkind, you haven't got time. Um, so it's been, a, it's been more learning than I thought it would be, actually, the six or seven months in retail. Uh, the first thing you do is be very clear it's a different business with different customers who have different needs and you mustn't, mustn't translate them incorrectly. Um, and it's exciting and it's incredibly competitive, uh, incredibly intense. You know, one of the very first things I got, I got taught about retail from a retailer rather than a tech industry person was daily action is really important and always remain suspicious about what the market's up to. And it's been just, the pace is quite incredible. We, we as a, my leadership team, we meet for half an hour every morning to go through results from the day before, customer feedback from the day before, and what we're going to do about it for the day ahead. So it's that, it's that alive and vital. And how does that compare to when you were operating within Genoi, how you operated? Yeah, look, I think Genoi, 3,000 customers, so 3,000 markets, they really, each one um, had the right to say, we think we're individual, we think we should be hearing from you as individuals. Um, And we were making decisions. So in Genoi, you probably made five or six decisions a day. You You were chasing deals, trying to make sure you were delivering for customers, keeping projects on track, all of those things. Uh, in retail, you make less decisions, but they're far bigger, uh, and the implications of them are far more reaching. So they're a bit more considered, more researched, more thought through. Uh, but one of the, you know, in my six months so far in retail, really there have been three big things on my mind. Um, number one is that we have to know truly deeply what our customers actually value rather than what we have. And I think in any technology industry, that the risk of we've got a blue one, do you want it, mm. is so high as opposed to really understanding what customers think about what they value, what what is annoying them, what is pleasing them, and all of those things. So a lot of focus on clarity of customer need. Secondly, just getting back to winning. Um, 
you know, there'll be people listening to this podcast, I'm sure, who will say, you know, you felt slower, less agile, less competitive than we would like you to be. Um, in the six months, it's been a key theme for me, is we've got to get back to winning. We deserve to be winning in a number of spaces that we haven't been. Uh, as a retailer and not the owner of the fixed network anymore, you know, if we're not focused on winning deals, customers, business, day in, day out, and showing up in front of customers like we want to win, you know, we're in trouble. So that real winning focus and then doing what we need to do to our business to be competitive, uh, which has meant some very hard calls in the last six months too in terms of cost and people and things like that. Uh, You know, it's got to be core. And the last one is just making our business effortless to work with. Uh, And look, that's an aspiration. I'm not pretending we've fixed that. Sure. Uh, But we are working hard on every customer journey, you know, and that's a cute word for just what it's like to start buying something to when you've finished and you own it and are using it uh, and analysing that whole process end to end and improving it. So what are the, I guess, what are the trends that that you see that customers are looking for and asking for from, uh, you know, from telecom? Look, I think firstly, um, value is pervasive. Um, People say, oh, you know, there's a price conscious market, then there's other markets. Every market is price conscious. Some markets will place value on premium service, on, on additional things, on high tech, the early adoption, uh, the, the greater level of care in those things. Some customers are happy to trade away a bunch of those services or service levels for price. So I think the first thing is price matters to everybody. You have to be competitive. Um, you know, everybody from the Toyota buyer to the BMW buyer will want to engage on price with the dealer. You know, and I think if you translate that to technology, it doesn't matter whether it's a high-end smartphone device or a, a voice and text device, people still want to know they're getting a good deal. Uh, so you've got to have that pervasive. You then move to uh, what other services people actually value. So, uh, you know, and, and mobile market's been fascinating, prepaid versus contracted, postpaid versus the very rapid emergence of uh, pe- people putting prepaid onto the home bill and paying for it that way in a recurring monthly format. Uh, and the very fast emergence of of what we call SIM-only plans or open-term plans Mm. where the customer owns their device because now that most smartphones cost more than a laptop, um, you know, there's a different thinking about the value of that device and whether I own it or whether my carrier owns it. And and I guess it adds a a fairly big cost onto a monthly bill to effectively finance that, you know, that device over Yeah, it can be, you know, effectively, you know, when you look at the cost of, say, financing a device over a couple of years and then having an open-term plan sitting alongside it, you know, it's about 50% of each. It adds up to the, what people are paying. So um, it is an important, you know, it's an important part of the consideration. If you're buying a $1,000 or $1,200 device and spending $100 a month on the plan, or even less, $60, $70 a month on the plan, you can see where the weight of the investment is. So we're seeing, um, and customers are telling us they actually do really like the open-term plan approach. They think, one, the, you know, the lack of feeling like you're, you're enclosed by a contract is important to them. Uh, they believe and they're right that we are more competitive in those spaces because we're constantly refreshing those plans. Uh, and for us, they bring a simplicity. And I think this whole concept in the mobile market of you know, every two years my contract ends and I go to market and ask everybody what they'll give me, mm. I'm not sure that that actually meets customer needs. I think customers want to be on good plans, kept competitive, and given no reason to leave. And, and that's a lot of our focus. Um, so look, mobile market is, is booming. Uh, we are still growing in that market. And, you know, we added uh, the company added 100,000 connections in six months. Uh, that's you know when we say we need to be winning in key markets. Mobile is an absolute key market. 
And even today as we're speaking, we've, we've announced and confirmed our plans around heavy investment in LTE. Um, yes, so tell us about those 4G as, plans briefly. Well, so the, um, we've, we're announcing and confirming our decision to go with LTE. Uh, we will have significant network coverage in Auckland by October and then Auckland-Wellington-Christchurch by Christmas. And then by mid-2014, most of the key locations throughout the country will have a significant portion of our network LTE data capable. Uh, we've chosen to go with a partner, uh, Huawei. Uh, very, very excited by their roadmap for the future and just by the weight of research and development they put in uh, and where they th- we think they could take our network and where we think they could take our customers. Um, you know, everyone quotes maximum speeds and I think everyone on, who listens to this sort of information will know maximum speeds is a, is a hero number. The real it's world speed. It's space. It is. Um, you know, we're, we're clear in our um, trials, we've seen 150 megabits, you know, so you can go, gosh, that's a big number. Mm. Uh, with carrier aggregation, one of the exciting technologies we will potentially deploy, 250. I think uh, most people who understand enough about technology will go, so that's well beyond generally the end-to-end performance of any site you're accessing or any device. Um, so there's a lot of, what it's creating is the headroom for mobile performance for the future. That's what it's really about. And, you know, we launched our fibre plans uh, two or three weeks ago. The key point we tried to make in that was, sure, you can talk about maximum uploads and downloads, but the real benefit of fibre is that in a premise like a home or an apartment or a school or a small business, when you've got four or five devices connected, everyone's getting a good experience, whereas in a copper world you get quite sharp degradation as you connect more devices. Sure. And, I mean, when we look at these speeds that we're able to get now with ultra-fast broadband, with 4G LTE uh, becoming available on a mobile basis, what are the business benefits that you see those things delivering? How is that going to impact uh, you know, New Zealand and help us to be competitive on, on a global basis? And, look, I think it's a great question um, because... There is a lot of talk about the technology, um, you know, and, and the um, UFB investment has been made by the government on the back of a promise that it will generate economic return. Mm. Um, and you sort of look at it and go, the technology alone cannot do that, um, other than for the people digging the holes and um, you know the, the people who sell the fibre. Um, so it's got to. I think fundamentally, it is about business efficiency and it's about reducing the cost of selling to new markets. Those are the two things that fast connectivity will give you. Um, I'm convinced within our small business market and even our premium uh, broadband and mobile users, the main things they'll do, video will become so much more prevalent. So engaging with new markets by video, servicing customers by video, uh, making product demonstrations available by video, so so much more effective because they're delivered that way. And the latency and the lack of jitter performance on these sort of fast networks means... It feels so much closer, doesn't it, when yeah. you can almost sit down with yeah, somebody. And, and when you, you know, yeah. if you add to that mm. video live engagement, mm. you know, then suddenly you've got a real proposition around yeah. not needing to invest in physical representation, mm. but being able to do a great job. Mm. Um, so video will be a big one. Um, collaboration, just the ability to work with a client at a distance, whether that be international or national. Uh, on quite complicated pieces of information because we've got good fast broadband, uh, whether it be mobile or fixed, um, is another one. Then the last one would be just the ability to adopt cloud services. Um, Network performance is key to that, uh, and network performance with our investment across fibre, across optical transport layer, across um, Wi-Fi trials we've been doing, LTE, uh, the deployment of um, dual carrier into network, all of these things are all just building our ability to offer a suite of network solutions that meet customer needs that really do support their growth by taking away the cost of distance. Now, um, 
you also wear the hat of, of chairman of uh, the Ice House. Yes. Are there any sort of you know innovative uh, things that you've seen coming through the Ice House that are really uh, you know leveraging technology and and modern telecommunications in a smart way that sort of stand out? Look, I think um, you know New Zealand entrepreneurial world and startup world is dominated in many ways by tech startups. Mm. Um, I think you know that reflects a little bit that you know the manufacturing and physical base out of New Zealand will always be limited by our size and location. Um, uh, we do see a number of exciting tech startups come out. So we've seen the Hanley Brothers do exceptionally well on mobile, uh, yeah. and they've just listed on the NZAX, the, the Snack Media, their next um, effort in the space, and, and it's going well from all, all accounts. Um, we have a, a Global Day One fund that the Ice House has put together with partners that is investing in startup tech organisations. So I see ones in there like Stay Today, which is uh, basically from 12 pm every day. You can see hotel rates for the night in each of the major locations in New Zealand and Australia, and, and click and buy. Cool. Um, so the, a lot of very cool technology ones are popping out quite quickly. Mm-hmm. I think the sector that's quite underdone is agriculture and biotech. You know, I think. You look at New Zealand's fundamental number one export and core earnings base is that. We're limited to some extent by the land we have available. You can only farm it once. Um, so taking our intellectual property and our technology capability and the fact we believe we're the smartest farmers in the world and turning that into services that you combine with technology and offer around the world has got to be a massive opportunity. So you know, the Ice House uh, has got a clear 2020 vision. Uh, we know New Zealand needs 3,000 more startup companies by 2020 to get into the top half of the OECD. We think we can influence, grow, support, and, and assist a thousand of those. And that's our, you know, our role in the world is to educate them, to incubate them, and to find routes to funding for them. And that's the things that Ice House is about. Uh, it's really exciting, and look, it's great for me in my retail role because the small business connection, you know, really does keep you very connected with some of the great thinking and able to add some value to that market, I hope. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Now, um, you know, look, looking at your role here within uh, telecom retail, what's, what's your sort of picture for the future for the next few years? Where, uh, you know, where do you expect uh, to see things go? Look, I think you start with those themes of absolutely understanding what customers value, winning in key markets and making it effortless. Um, you know, if I look out the next 18 months at the roadmap that we have in mind of products and then what we call experience changes for customers, so the way in which they engage with us, the way in which they um, buy and service off us, this will be one of the fastest periods of change for the company. And I think even the last few weeks people have seen fibre, seeing LTE, um, you ultra-fast know, broadband, ultra-fast broadband um, and several of the other things that are coming to market quite mm. quickly now. Mm. I think, you know, when we look back and say exciting time for us, free of regulation, free of operational separation, those things, Mm. I'm not sure to most people that's meant much. It sounds a bit like an excuse. Mm. Um, As they see the pace at which we are changing moving forward, I hope, you know, particularly our competitiveness in mobile is a sign of what is to come. We're very committed to that. When you stand back from it, we're clear on the segments we think are out there. There's, There's a business segment, you know, a mass business segment that we think is a very exciting part of New Zealand's future and economy. We don't think we've been doing a great job in that segment, and I think most of those customers would agree. Uh, we think a local presence where, you know, most of these businesses that I'm thinking of are single site, they operate out of a single location. Mm-hmm. Having a, a telecom business hub in their area that they know that they go with, that are staffed and owned by people like them, so they're franchised and run that way, that will be the key to us really cracking, engaging with that market and making it easy. How well does that work? For for instance, um, I, I received a call some weeks ago from a from a local 
telecom uh, business hub. And uh, to cut a long story short, I ended up with um, getting re-signed for 24 months on a particular service. That's good news. Um, well, it wasn't because I hadn't actually agreed to it. Right. Okay. Uh, so it looks as though someone, somebody in that particular chain yep. um, was maybe being incentivized and hadn't maybe jumped through quite the right hoops, mm-hmm. as far as I could tell anyway, yeah. and, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe I've missed something in the process mm. and I did agree to it. Um, are, the, are those sorts of issues something that you've come across in the, in the past with uh, uh, this type of model? I mean, I've seen the yeah. same in Australia too mm. with Telstra, uh, where, you know, where dealers are so heavily incentivised yeah. on signing deals um, that the full story doesn't always get to the customer. Yeah, look, there's, I, I think in any sales um, channel, there is risk of that, um, and the balance between you know customers are saying, look, we want you to turn up and earn our business. We want you to be energetic. We want you to show that you care and you value it. Uh, and then, of course, you know, but we want you to be honest and straight up and and deal with things the right way and leave me clear that I got what I asked for. Um, you know, we've got a lot of quality work to do across this. I, I'm, this is the beginning, but we're very clear about the channel model, which is that it will be local business hubs, franchise with owners who have a lot of skin in the game, who are riding on the success of this. Mm. Our incentives for them are based on the overall outcome, not on a, on a unit sort of model. So it's not, you know, bring us this many pieces of paper signed and you get rewarded. It is the growth of the business earnings we get from the region so that they do have to have a mature long-term approach to that. Mm. Um, and we are moving our minds now to the quality and training and capability of the sales forces that sit out there. Um, so we'll have quite an active role in supporting those franchises and, and making sure they represent our brand appropriately. And you know, and things like people not sure that they got what they signed for or got something they didn't sign for, those are, you know, those are the sort of issues that has to address mm. straight up. Uh, having said that, I'm quite convinced the model is right. The local business model makes a lot of sense. I've been and visited a few, mm. and you, you get a feeling of the energy, the fact they know the customers in the area, they have those relationships. That's all important, I think. For small business, that's how they like to do business. Yeah. Um, then I think there's a premium set of customers. You know, uh, New Zealanders who value technology to the point that they're happy to pay a fair price to get great services and have it looked after and have it sorted. Mm. Uh, there's an early adopter market, and our aim with them is to much more understand who they are and, and almost be involved in co-creation of our offers and our business with them and have them in very early, particularly as new technology emerges. Uh, and then we have what I would call the rest of us um, who do more and more rely on technology but need it to be valuable, to, to be simple and effortless to get. Uh, and those are the key markets that we see and we're very clear on what our proposition will be to each one of them. And over the next 18 months, uh, you know, I hope they will perceive Telecom's brand quite differently. Now, looking to the the uh, announcement in recent days around uh, uh, staff that will mm. be, um, you know, I guess cut cut from the business. Yep. Um, you know, I know a portion of our listeners are, um, are customers of Telecom. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have staff from Telecom. Yep. Um, to those t- two groups, can you, I guess, you know, talk a little bit about, um, you know, I guess what what these um, cuts are going to uh, do in terms mm-hmm. of an impact. Yep. Uh, you know, I think there's there's already um, uh, some feeling that, and and I think you know you, you you've talked about it in terms of being a little bit slow as a business to uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, to achieve certain things. Is this going to make a big difference in terms of speeding things up? Yeah, look, I always hesitate to go straight to yes on that, and fundamentally, yes, agility is one of the key aims. 
That is not in any way saying that the people in the roles that won't be part of the future were not agile or not working hard or not giving of their all and doing their very best. In fact, you know, it's the hardest thing when a corporation makes changes like this to make it clear to people it's not about their performance or them as a person and their skills and capabilities. It is about the fact this, this industry changed fundamentally and it changed a year ago. And if anything, we've waited too long to go right. Now that we're a retailer who no longer owns the fixed network and no longer earns the returns off that, what shape, what leanness and what agility do we have to have? So, you know, if the one thing, you know, I am convinced from the conversations I've had with dozens and hundreds of our people, they know this is right to do. Uh, they individually are worried if they are impacted by it, of course. Sure. Um, our job in that is to make it clear the business drivers for this uh, treat people with respect and dignity and a, and a good process on the way through and be of whatever assistance we can through a time of transition for them. Uh, and then communicate very clearly to our people who are part of the business going forward and the roles that are part of the business going forward what we're going to be like so that people can sign up and give it to it of their all. Um, from a customer point of view, look, I, I think I'm clear, you know, if I look at the changes we've made in retail, they are about giving us agility. They are about removing costs so that we can be competitive on prices. Um, and they are about a simpler business that's much more market-focused and much less internally focused. So when I look at each role that won't be part of our design in the future, I can, I can relate it to those targets. So it has been done that way. Um, it gets a lot of sensational coverage. Um, you know, there are other players in this industry also reducing by hundreds who are not, you know, their brand isn't the same place we are, so they don't get the same attention. Um, the, the point is, you know, this industry has changed fundamentally. People's expectation of what they're going to pay and value has shifted. We have to recognise that. And secondly, I think those customers want us to become more agile. They want less checking the checker. They want less layers of approval. They want less PowerPoint packs thinking about what to do and more doing. Mm. Um, you know, and I've seen us make decisions now that I watched previously from other roles take four or five months in this market happen in four or five days. Mm. And I think that's the pace we've got to be at as a retailer. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I guess if we step back a little bit and away from, uh, away from uh, you know, telecom as an entity, but this type of change that, uh, you know, that you're making mm-hmm. and, as you referred to, others are making, um, and I guess the nature of globalisation. I mean, there are so many changes going on uh, here in New Zealand and internationally. Are you worried about what our our, our future is as a as a country in terms of um, you know how much employment there will be for people, mm. uh, how the economy will look if we step forward five, ten, fifteen? Uh, 20 years, you know, we'd look in every direction and we're seeing, uh, you know, job cuts from things that in the past were quite normal. Uh, one the other day was uh, TAB. They laid off 50 people uh, that took phone calls mm-hmm. uh, because that's moved into an online-type mm-hmm. context. They don't need to do that. Yep. Uh, and, of course, call centre work now. Um, in a lot of cases, it makes sense to move those roles uh, offshore mm-hmm. purely from a dollars and cents point of view. How do you think that's going to impact us? Look, I think all the messages are very clear, which is we need to aim at a higher value economy with an average higher value role or or job available in it. Um, We need so much more confidence in doing that. We need people who are confident in New Zealand's ability to fight and win on that stage globally. And look, through the Ice House, I see the success stories. I also see the the other nine out of ten that don't make it. Um, You've got to have admiration for the entrepreneurs in our society who... 
you know, put it all at risk, the house, the car, the, you know, the family fortune, and go after it and, and have a go and get knocked down and have another go and get knocked down and have another go and maybe the fifth one works. Mm, mm. Uh, we need so much more of that entrepreneurial spirit here. Um, we need to be much more open to what it means to work with foreign partners. Um, you know, we need to welcome high-value, high-capability immigrants who, on average, from everything I've seen, produce four or five jobs around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to be clear that you know, if, if we are the best farmers in the world, how do we turn that into technology offerings that add value to other people? We need to um, just, and, and we need to, and I think this has been talked about a lot, shift our investment thinking from housing to business growth. Uh, they're all subjects that have been well debated in the media. Um, I don't think too many people disagree. They go, yes, that's right, but what do you do next? Um, and that's the uh, New Zealand's future has to be based on those things. You know, I've got a, a 17-year-old and a 13-year-old, and I'm looking going, wonder if their careers are going to be in this country. Um, and I want them to be, and, and you know, they're not thinking about it yet because they've got the carefree life that you have at sure. 17 and 13. But... Um, you know, this is what we need to start thinking about, and we need to think about our alumni and about who those people are and how they can create value. Um, you know, I've, I've got uh, a relative returning from Alaska, of all places, to become CEO of the Callahan Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and here I've been talking, and she's here in two or three weeks, and, you know, we have joint quite big aspirations for what we can achieve. Um, because we need many more high-value jobs in this country. We've got to change our perception of some too. Like the one that interests me a bit is call centre quotation marks, um, which is perceived to be a low-value, uh, you know, a certain segment of the workforce job. Yet you look at what it means to be on a 24/7 network support desk, which is, you know, potentially late five-figure, six-figure roles for the, the level of network capability and design capability people might have. Uh, in New Zealand, we bring a labour market advantage and an exchange rate advantage to those roles. With the sort of network investments we've made, there are no reasons why it cannot be based out of here. Uh, and I look at those and go, we've got to get excited about those business opportunities and about what we can do with those. Um, and I think we go, uh, call centre, not so sure I want that. I've watched, in my Genoi role, uh, in the last six months of that, I watched a couple of organisations bring their entire global call centre back to New Zealand. English speaking, politically stable, economically pretty sound, uh, but with some cost and quality advantages. And I just, there are some things where I think we've got to reshape what we think great work looks like in the future. Um, And it's not about low income, not at all. Uh, In fact, you know, most of what I'm thinking about is well above New Zealand average income. And I think we need to get excited about those opportunities and excited about our entrepreneurs and excited about backing them to create the workforce of the future. And are, you, and are you seeing some entrepreneurial activity in that space? Uh, look, not so much in that call centre space. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, look, we are looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think other organisations, you know, of medium to large size are the best place to, you know, really be thinking, what, is this an opportunity for us? Mm. Um, we need to be thinking about what sort of education we need people to have to be valuable for those roles. So, sure. you know, how we're, how we're linking our investment in education to those outcomes. Um, and how we make sure we've got the, the people available. You know, I know we have a portion of our call centres offshore. A part of the reason for that was just the availability of experienced broadband support people, you know, okay. where we could get that. So it's, it partly is an availability issue. And I think if you, I mean, if you do that right, you can get a pretty good result for your customer as well. Yeah, look, we're, we're very clear, you know, on our offshore, onshore mix and call centres, it's task-based, not time or people-based. So... 
you know, restoration of technical faults, support of broadband, very well done out of uh, the Philippines where we have those centres based. Mm-hmm. Things like new property or move, very much done in New Zealand because it requires that different conversation and different engagement level from the people. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think we've, we've got very good over the last four or five years at working out what's de- best done in each location based on an expertise basis, not a cost basis. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now um, flicking back to look a little bit at the, the, the technology side. Mm-hmm. Um, one, of the, uh, one, of the, one of the products that, um, that I've used extensively from, from one of your uh, competitors uh, is their femtocell box. It gives you know, yep. access to, uh, um, to mobile uh, in a place that doesn't have very good mobile coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also seen overseas the uh, the mobile sort of extender uh, type products. You put a big aerial up on the roof, and it you know spreads a signal into your house. Yep. Um, are, are those uh, you know products that telecoms going to be able to bring to to market, or are they just too challenging um, to you know to to bring here? Look, I think uh, firstly our focus on the coverage of our network as it stands. So constant, you know, every year we are adding cell sites and adding penetration. We believe in you know 850 and then 700 in the future megahertz for 4G LTE is is really effective in building performance. Uh, Fem to cells and other you know micro cell sites um, solutions. We're continuing to look at the key is finding the right mix of quality, cost, and ease of deployment so you can support it. You know we will always be the organisation that has to think about how would you deliver this nationally, how would you deliver it in scale, rather than you know a couple of hundred services, mm. yeah. um, because I think that's what people expect from our brand. Um, had, I mean, has Vodafone had the advantage that they're able to leverage off being a global organisation just to, um, you know, r- release here? Yeah, I'm sure there's a bit of that. Um, we are quite excited by the new partnership we've announced today and their capability in these areas. So, you know, a couple of us went to Mobile World Congress, saw what everybody has to offer. Mm. Um, I think this development in small cell site or micro cell site, whether it be Fem to Cell or other technologies... Mm. Uh, is very much occurring. Um, you know, and it's a little bit like what we've tried with Wi-Fi. So we've leveraged the phone box locations, mm, you know, mm. which is a unique thing that telecom has in this market. You've got a piece of real estate. It has power. It has network connectivity. Um, you know, it's not used anywhere near as much as it used to be. Mm. Um, and you add to it Wi-Fi, and suddenly you've got a whole different proposition. I'm quite excited about what I can do with that for our customers as part of the you know, in the future, if you're with us for broadband or, or smartphone, that might be a service that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the deployment of that is quite fast at the moment. We are looking into the roadmaps of our partners all the time to see if the right mix of um, micro cell site type solutions is coming. Um, but in general, we also, you know, it's just keep filling in the coverage gaps that we have as sure. a key focus. Yeah. Well, it does seem to be one of those things. There's, there will be a segment of customers that, you know, have yep. already, they're already using those yep. types of devices and they yep. will never change, they'd never consider telecom until you were able to offer that. Yeah. Um, so, okay, no, that's interesting. Now, um, HD voice is something that's been touted overseas as, uh, um, uh, you know, coming in alongside uh, 4G LTE networks. Mm-hmm. Where does that sort of sit on the radar for, Look, uh, for um, telecom? At the we're moment? clear that we're um, committed to developing voice over fibre, mm-hmm. so IP voice effectively across the bulk of the network, um, and that will come uh, later this year. Um, that you know, it, it's really interesting because the value proposition for voice it's it's quite hard to convince people that voice is more valuable when it's on IP or on fibre or on you know or on LTE. 
because the quality of voice that's offered on 3G network today or on the PSDN today is, you know, is perfectly fine for people. Voice is shifting to mobile and reducing. There's mm-hmm. no question both trends are very much alive yep. um, as people are using many other forms of messaging um, as they're using uh, IP-based, you know, Skypes uh, and, and all of the various services, the Vibers and the so-ons. Um, so as you look forward at voice, you say, how much investment would people actually want us to make and pay for in voice versus the services we have today? Um, and I think more importantly, just the ease of having that voice be mobile all the time, I think is the key um, the key push. There are so many conversations I have with customers now where they say, look, the only time the home phone rings is... Uh, my grandparents, or you know, elderly sure. neighbours, well, or don't have a home phone, yeah, so, or, but, yeah. Um, or you know, if it rang, it would scare me to yeah. death because I didn't know what it was. Um, yeah. Yeah. So very clear that trend is to individual mobile devices with the property being serviced by a large fibre pipe. Sure, that will be the end so, game. So with the the HD voice, uh, you know, service, which you know, which is something that usually runs on, you know, or you know, is being rolled out. I think AT and T have just announced it mm-hmm. in the in the US to go on their four G network. Yeah. Uh, is that something that you? you might sort of skip at this stage, you know, the costs associated with it Look, don't necessarily deliver. Yeah, it's absolutely... So we haven't got a committed date mm. to roll voice onto LTE. Mm. Um, we are going to keep looking at, particularly now that we've started, you know, we've announced to our partners for the U-Train, uh, for the, the sites. Sure. You know, we'll just keep looking at what they have to offer. And, and like all of these things, there'll be a point in time at which it will make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, um, OK. Um, now, just notice the little uh, little gadget on your wrist there. Uh, t- t- tell us about that. Uh, uh, the Nike Fuel Band. Um, not available in New Zealand yet, apparently. Uh, look, it's just... Um, I think there's a couple of products in the space. Fitbit is one of the other ones. That's right, um, yep. So it's just, just a, a, a motion sensor that you wear around your wrist that picks up whether you're moving at all during the day, which for all of us tech people is important. Um, and yeah, I love it. It Bluetooths to uh, all the iOS and Android devices, runs a little app on those, and makes sure I'm doing enough moving about and exercising. Oh, so that's quite cool. That's good. Now, I noticed on uh, on Twitter you had quite a few interactions with Nike around this particular uh, <laughs> device in, yeah, in recent days. Um, where do you where do you see uh, social media sort of yeah. you know fitting for you personally, and then for the you know as a consumer, yeah. uh, but also you know more broadly for uh, you know yeah. for telecom as an organisation? Look, it's um, it's exciting, and there's no question it's becoming a service delivery channel and, a, and an acquisition channel. So, I think up until now we've sort of regarded it as you know you've got to keep an eye on Facebook and on Twitter and on whatever um, to make sure there's nothing going on in there that's about your products or about your company. What we've, we've moved to, so we have Facebook chat available through the Telecom Facebook website. It's not, you know, it's not particularly clever or advanced yet, but uh, what we can see very much coming is that Twitter will be interesting as to where it positions all the way through the consumer market. It feels much more like a business engagement. Mm-hmm. Fascinating that, you know, as I searched around for support on a Nike device, the, the pointed at you at, you get your support on Twitter, not email, not Facebook. You go to Twitter and you... And I found it interesting that they would choose that, and you probably noticed I conducted about half the conversation open and then shifted it to DMs. Right. Because I thought if it was me, I wouldn't want this being conducted open because, you know, if I want to start getting pointed about my complaint, sure. I, I would respect <laughs> the company by doing it on DM. And, I, you know, I tend to, whenever I see something that's directed at me on Twitter that's an issue around telecom, I'll generally say, look, let's pick it up on DM and then we can talk straight about it and yep, solve it. Not, not um, publicly, yeah. Um, you know, because we don't do our other service calls publicly. Exactly. So, um, yeah. 
Having said that, if a customer is complaining and raising an issue and wants to have a conversation in public, happy to do it. Um, but I think those social media channels will become an integrated and forefront part of our service delivery channels. There's no question. Live chat is the one that is growing fastest for us, and I'm getting great customer feedback on it. People are saying, actually, it's really good because it is like talking to someone, um, but I have a record of the conversation and what happened, uh, and I can live my slightly multitasking life and do it. So people really do like it. I think it's the perfect mix between email, where I'm a little bit worried about whether someone's actually paying attention to me, and live chat, where I know someone is because they're engaged back and forth. Mm. Um, We did some work recently uh, with about 3,000 customers talking to them about these engagements. Uh, and it was interesting. Firstly, no customer is online or not online. Customers want to do different things for different reasons. Uh, managing my account, so paying my bill, uh, changing my plan, adding an allocation or something, really want to do all that online. Really don't want to have to call you for that, was clear message. Mm. Um, uh, buying something, very varied. So depending on who it was, how much they knew, buying something would go from a, no, I want to go to a store, all the way to, if you had good capability online, I'd much rather use that, so very spread. Uh, restoration, almost universal, people said, I want to talk to someone. So if something's broken, I, I need to know that you're with me, that you're talking to me and someone owns it. Right. It really interesting, and, th- and that was key feedback for the future of how we design, how we interact, it's really important. Mm-hmm. Social media can cover all three of those. So I've seen some really interesting Facebook studies of how you could do the whole purchase journey on Facebook, including sort of the, hey, I'm interested in a smartphone, you go to your Facebook friends and get advice on which ones, you go back and say, hey, I think I'm choosing the Kamakusa, they come back and tell you what they think of that, you then start engaging for deals, really interesting customer journeys through that. Mm. So this will be very much part of our future. Live chat's currently our biggest success story. The other thing that's fascinating, we haven't sort of released this yet, but we have come out and said we've got about 200 fibre orders in the first four or five days. Okay. Um, that's grown to around 250 at about six, seven days now. So probably had an initial burst settling to, you know, I'll be interested to see where it settles. Um, but 70% of them completed the whole buy online. And that was the, you know, that's great news for us um, and quite a surprise because that's, it's nothing like that in copper broadband. Right. Oh. I don't know whether that says the tech audience are buying fibre first. Maybe they are. Probably, yeah. Um, yeah. But um, really encouraging to see that people are completing that journey successfully online and quite comfortable with it. Because mm-hmm. um, it's, it's quite a complicated buy. So It is. And do you think people are finding it enough information there, um, you know, around ultra-fast broadband? I mean, when I when I looked, yeah. you know, I had a, a situation where I thought, oh, this is going to be perfect, telecom ultra-fast broadband, and then diving into some of the info, uh, you know, found maybe one or two of the shortcomings of the initial, you know, the initial offering, yeah. uh, and then uh, and then pulled back. Do you think people catch all of the all of the fine print in that sort of uh, context, Look, or is there a bit of a risk that you'll end up with some customers who'll get the service and yep. then find? oh, this doesn't work with my email server, or, you know, yeah. et cetera. Look, I, one, we're changing it every day because every day we're reviewing the calls we've had, what's gone right and wrong, and then going, is there information we should be putting into mm-hmm. the web journey? Um, so, that you know, that's classic early phase uh, of anything like this. Um, it is complicated because location changes things, uh, your, your home set up and the services you have changes things. The reason why we've gone with a copper line included is to address the fact that you know you need that for alarms and, and sky and things like that. Uh, and that addresses one set of issues that might cut customers out otherwise. Um, and uh, we're learning every day through the journey basically and adding information back. We've found you know, probably 
think we had a 3% cancellation rate so far of the orders we've taken. About 3% have gone, ah, actually you can't have fibre yet or you can't have it in that situation. Okay. That's not too bad for mm. early days. Mm. I'm like, we're okay with that, but we're picking up lots of hints about what to do better each time. Okay, that's good. Um, well, I think that sort of pretty much wraps it up, Chris. Cool. Yeah, thank, thank you. Enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thanks yeah. for uh, thanks for your time. Brilliant. It's great. Thanks, Paul. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this special edition of the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Uh, if you're not a regular listener to the show, you can, of course, find us on iTunes, online at nztechpodcast.com, and across Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, and Google+. Uh, so feel free to uh, to join us on those channels. And you can track me, Paul Spain, down online. Uh, the easiest place is twitter.com slash paulspain. Thanks for listening. See ya. 